0: Uh, The question was why are L and S not separately conserved in this section? Because the Hamiltonian for spin orbit interactions does not commute with S or L. Uh, Student questions. What does the Lande G-factor actually mean account for? So you need to find the expectation value of L plus 2S and the G-factor is the factor that relates that to the expectation value of J. I'm confused about what determines when the perturbation theory is applicable and the strong field Zeeman effect, is the perturbation strong enough not to be handled by the perturbation theory, which requires the perturbation to be small or what? And how can we determine that? So you use perturbation theory to calculate the shift in the energy level. That shift is small compared to the splittings that you had before, then it's a small perturbation. But you have to Either estimate or calculate what the shift is to know whether it's small. Can we use the Zeeman effect to find magnetic fields, for example, in astrophysics? So, in Zeeman's original paper, he said you could use this to measure the magnetic fields on stars. And subsequently, that's how people did measure the magnetic fields on stars. For the Zeeman effect, is B internal <coughs> just the magnetic dipole moment associated with the spin? No, it's the <coughs> Lorentz force magnetic field you get because the electron is moving in the electric field of the proton. If B external is much less than B internal, why is it that a dominating fine structure means H prime can be treated as a small perturbation? So, B internal can be small and B external can be even smaller. So they can both be perturbations. How would it work when two magnetic fields are comparable? There's a section in the chapter on the intermediate Zeeman effect where you treat them as the same size. I still don't quite understand what it means to lift the degeneracy. I'm not clear about whether that means it increases or removes it. So lifting the degeneracy means you remove it. So the per- Lifting the degeneracy means there's a perturbation that splits the levels. They have different energy, different energies, so they're no longer degenerate. Why did the energy level shift when an atom is placed in a uniform external magnetic field? So because we have spins and orbital angular momenta, that means they're dipole moments, which means the energies in the magnetic field will depend on how those magnetic dipole moments are aligned with the magnetic field. Why is it that equation 6.72 works? Griffiths seems to just pass over this. That's because 6.72 is just the application of what he said was the most famous equation in quantum mechanics, first order perturbation theory, for the energy level. So since it's the most famous equation, he doesn't have to explain it again. Why are there so many corrections for every part of quantum mechanics? Is it just that everything is so different and can't be generalized? I don't think there's any more corrections than in classical mechanics, it's just that nobody bothers to teach you all those corrections anymore because no one cares anymore. Because the real world is quantum mechanical, so if we want to understand the real world, we want to work out all the quantum mechanical corrections to as precisely as possible. But back in the day, students, you know, worked out perturbation theory for orbits and took into account the coefficient of friction on the things rolling up and down different surfaces with magnetic fields and whatever. People still do that, right? Some people do that. Okay, so it just depends on your level of interest. If you're interested, you can always find more corrections. It's because we don't know how to solve things exactly. we just solve things exactly, there wouldn't be any corrections. So why are there... uh, I think we just did that. Was this this effect theorized, then found, or found, then explained? So Zeeman's paper was in the 1890s when he found the the Zeeman effect, but there was no quantum mechanics or real quantum mechanics until 1926, so it wasn't properly explained until 30 years later. Any other (coughs) questions? So we're finally going to apply perturbation theory to some real-world problems. So we'll do the fine structure of hydrogen. I mean degenerate perturbation theory, although we're going to cheat. So remember we found the energy levels at lowest order are minus alpha squared mc squared over 2n squared, where n is the principal quantum number. What we're going to find is that there are a bunch of other corrections. There are relativistic corrections. There's a spin orbit correction. There's the lamb shift. There's the hyperfine splitting. So these guys are corrections that are of order alpha to the fourth. So that means, <coughs> since alpha is about 1 over 137, these are corrections that are four orders of magnet, one part in 10 to the 4 corrections. Lamb shift is an alpha to the fifth correction. And you need to understand quantum field theory to do that. So unfortunately, we don't get to calculate it. But the hyperfine correction is an alpha to the fourth correction that's suppressed by the mass of the electron over the mass of the proton. So we'll get to do that one, too. So our first relativistic correction, we've been treating kinetic energy as if it was p squared over twice the mass. And everyone knows that's wrong. You guys didn't call me on it. Kinetic energy is really p squared c squared plus m squared c to the fourth square root minus mc squared, as you took in your relativity course. So if pc is much less than mc squared, then the kinetic energy can be approximated by expanding out that square root. So we can factor out an mc squared, We expand out the square root, we'll get 1 plus p squared over 2mc squared. First coefficient's a half. Then the next guy is that term squared (laughs) with an eighth. (coughs) And the ones cancel. I'm sorry, if its energy is much less than its rest mass, is that what you're assuming? No, the energy is always bigger than the rest mass. We're assuming (coughs) that the momentum is small compared to the mass times the speed of light. Which is to say it's moving slowly, which means it's non-relativistic. Uh, well, if you measure precisely enough, you'll see that even though it's traveling at one hundredth the speed of light, there's still a correction. The correction's going to be that big. So, non-relativistic means that the relativistic corrections are small. <coughs> not that they're not there. So because we're lazy we'll just keep this first order correction so that means we should include a term in our Hamiltonian relativistic correction that goes like p to the fourth and uh, you can see obviously or check in your spare time that this correction Hamiltonian commutes with L squared and it commutes with LZ. So that means NL and M are good quantum numbers. So that means we can use non-degenerate perturbation theory. Because we're using our shortcut, we found some observables that label all the degenerate states, but they have different eigenvalues. So once we use that basis, we don't have to worry about diagonalizing the perturbation Hamiltonian. It's already diagonal for us. And uh, so perturbation theory tells us the first order correction should just be the expectation value of that perturbation in the particular state we care about. So we need the expectation value p to the fourth. And we can use our favorite trick that we can write p squared in terms of the energy and the potential. So if we subtract the potential from the energy and multiply by 2m. For the lowest order of energy, we should get p squared. <coughs> so if we square that, we'll get p to the fourth. And we can play this trick of writing one P-squared acting on the cat and one P-squared acting on the bra. Remember that uh, the potential for hydrogen was H bar C alpha over R. The energy levels were alpha squared MC squared over 2N squared. So for hydrogen, most. We already know the expectation value of the energy because it's an eigenvalue at lowest order. So we need an expectation value, the 1 over r term, from the potential. And from the potential squared, we need a 1 over r squared. problems in the chapter, you get to work out what these expectation values are. I think we've done this one before. So, by dimensional analysis, 1 over r, expectation value has to go like 1 over the Bohr radius the only thing that's going to have the right units. Or at least that's the relevant physical scale, right? The Bohr radius is the size of the atom, so it's going to go like 1 over the Bohr radius. 1 over r squared is going to go like 1 over the Bohr radius squared. And then it's just a matter of <coughs> doing some integrals to work out the coefficients. So 1 over r goes like 1 over n squared and 1 over r squared goes like 1 over l plus a half n cubed. So we just need to massage this a little. So this, there's a one over N squared A. The Bohr radius is H bar over alpha MC. So the H bars will cancel. Guy so has 1 over a squared, so we'll have an h bar squared alpha mc squared. So these the h bar squareds cancel. So this guy, we see an alpha squared mc squared over n squared, but the two is on top, so that that's actually minus four times the lowest order energy. Here, we have a one over n cubed. These guys go like one over n to the fourth, so this is four n times the lowest order energy squared. There's this extra factor of L plus a half on the bottom. So if we factor out the lowest order energy, that's. we predicted the corrections go like alpha squared over n squared. So that's three parts and 10 to the 5, roughly. So you think we only care about this if... Uh, we really wanted to know the precise spectra but of course we do but also what if we did atoms that had a large number of protons then remember the rule was that wait the charge of the nucleus then has a factor of z so everywhere there was an alpha we get z alpha So then the size of the corrections would go like z squared, alpha squared, over 2n squared. so, yes? If you were looking that close, wouldn't you have to worry about the, more about the interactions? I mean, yeah, there's, there are all kinds of things we'd have to take account. There would be z electrons to worry about, too. And we just barely managed to handle two last week. But there's some qualitative things you can see. <coughs> so when Z gets large, these relativistic corrections uh, are important. <coughs> so when Z is 80, then this is like a 17% effect instead of three parts and 10 to the 5. And there are some interesting uh, elements when you get up to large Z. Gold has 79. <coughs> Z equals 79, and Mercury has Z equals 80. And they don't look like your standard metals. Why is that? If you look at the configuration, gold is starting to pull up the N equals 6 S wave. It's got one electron in there. And Mercury has two electrons in there. If you go one higher up, it has to start pulling up the P wave because the S-Wave already has two electrons in it. It can only have two, because it can only put the, the spins up and down. So what's happening from these relativistic corrections is that they shrink the S-Wave orbitals. That means these guys are more tightly bound than you would expect, as, as they are for other metals. That means these guys don't like to share these outer electrons. That means they won't react chemically as much as other metals. So that would tell you that, for example, gold might not tarnish like other metals that do. But it can, act, it can accept an electron. So you can still have make a, mo- molecules or bonds between gold atoms. But Mercury can't even accept an electron into this shell. So it doesn't even like to bond with itself. So that would mean that it's not going to make a nice solid thing, it's going to be a liquid thing. It also means that it's a very poor conductor for a metal. So if you actually work out what the wave functions do, The uh, dashed line is the non-relativistic calculation. The solid line is the relativistic calculation using the Dirac equation. So what you see here is that there's a bigger effect for S waves than P waves. The effect gets bigger as N gets bigger. And it shrinks (coughs) down so the electrons are held more tightly. So once you get out to N equals 6, these are big corrections. Also, because uh, you're moving the outer shell inward, that means you're changing the energy splitting between the five, n equals 5 and n equals 6 levels. So when you absorb photons, you can move, I can move you from 5 to 6. So there's an absorption line in those metals in this row. Any, any metal that has an electron in the 5 level can absorb a photon and move, up, move the electron up to the n equals 6 level. <coughs> but usually the, the absorption is uh, maximized in the ultraviolet short wavelengths. But because we're shrinking this guy down, the absorption line in gold gets moved into the visible. And that means we observe these short wavelengths, but we reflect longer wavelengths. And this just happens to get close to one around yellow light. So that's why gold is yellow instead of silvery like most metals. So the properties of gold and mercury are because of relativity applied to quantum mechanics. So don't let anyone tell you you can't see the effects of relativity. You see it in your bling. Next correction, spin orbit correction. So, classically, if you had a charged particle with velocity v going around in an orbit, uh, you would. charged particle produces an electric field, and if it's moving, that means there's a magnetic field. So we can choose the rest frame where the electron is sitting still and the proton is moving around in orbit around the electron then the magnetic field that the electron would see would be given by V cross E which we can write as P cross E or even more cleverly E cross P when we flip the sign And the electric field is just the Coulomb electric field. So there's a 1 over 4 pi epsilon not C r cubed on the bottom, times the charge times the radial vector on top. So that gives us a magnetic field that looks like, and. Uh, since we have R cross P, that's just L, so the magnetic field points along (coughs) the orbital angular momentum. And we have experience with magnetic fields, we know that that means there's a correction in the Hamiltonian dipole moment dotted into the magnetic field. And we've got experience with magnetic dipoles for electrons. Some fudge factor times the spin of the electron. And uh, we said that this fudge factor is about 2. I have another slide about that. Um, So in terms of these pictures of Electrons moving through space and time. Here's an electron. Uh, time is going up. It comes along and it hits a magnetic field, which is really just a photon. And it gets scattered, it flips its spin. Uh, and from, from these uh, amplitude calculations or from the Dirac equation, you find that the effective dipole moment has a factor of two. But that's not the end of the story, actually. Because you, this electron could also emit a photon before it scatters off the magnetic field and then reabsorb it. That's called a quantum loop correction. That's quantum field theory. Can that's you do it at any point like that? So yeah, you have to, yeah, you have to sum over all the ways it could do it. Just like in qua- it's quantum field theory, so you have to do all that summation. So also. If I fix the momentum of the photon and the initial electron and the final electron, there's one momentum undetermined in here. Yeah? It just emits photons spontaneous for no reason? Just as a? It's allowed to do that. Pardon me? I mean, I mean like, can you predict how often? It, yes. It just Quantum field theory tells you how often this happens. But to do the calculation, there's this. Uh, if I impo- impose momentum conservation at each interaction, there's this one momentum left over that's not determined by the external momentum. So that means I have to sum over that momenta, which means I have to integrate over it because it's continuous. Yeah? Could you maybe the electron kind of split up into two things and then re came back together? Yeah. Can I do that too? Um, it can do all kinds of things and you have to include all those effects. The, the biggest effect is just this. There are other effects that you have to include as well. You just, zero box and zero can no. You have to include them. But to leading order what it tells you is that this thing that we said was 2, the g factor, is actually 2 plus alpha over pi after you do the integral and all the dust settles. But there are more corrections you can keep going if you have enough patience, work 10 years of spare time. You can find all the coefficients of alpha to the fourth. And then more complicated things start happening when you get down to such small corrections, like neutrinos and blah, blah, blah. So the upshot is that g is not equal to 2 exactly. You can turn this around, measure g, and then since this is a power series in alpha. you can invert it and find measure a value of alpha indirectly. So if you can compare that with what you get from spectroscopy, you can see that it frees up many decimal places. So this is a very successful theory. You can't find another theory that can calculate things to this many decimal places that accurately. So that's called quantum electrodynamics. Now, one of our quantum questions was what's the deal with quantum mechanics and general relativity? So there are other kinds of quantum corrections that happen in this theory, called quantum electrodynamics. For example, if we scatter two electrons, we can exchange or electron and a positron, we can exchange a photon between them. That's just the coulomb potential. a photon could turn into an electron-positron pair and turn back into a photon. And you have to sum over all the possible momenta here. When you do that, it turns out that if you allow momentum to be arbitrarily high, then this integral is divergent. So you have to cut it off someplace, because you don't know what happening. That's talking about arbitrarily short distances, which you don't know anything about. So. Can just parameterize your ignorance and say, I don't I only know about them up to some very t- tiny distance. Yeah. And it turns out in electrodynam- quantum electrodynamics that when you do all these calculations, there's only two types of these divergences that you're sensitive to. So you can uh, and you can absorb those extra. What they do is they shift the value of the electron mass and the alpha from what they would have been in a world where h-bar was zero. But since you didn't, you have no way of knowing what those things would be in that world because we don't live in that world and you can't set h-bar to zero in your lab, you might as well just absorb those unknown effects into the definition of the electron mass and alpha. Once you do that, then you're done and you can do all these calculations to many orders in alpha does leave over one effect that the alpha that you measure depends on the distance scale you measure it at. Once you get smaller than one hundredth of an atom in size, alpha starts changing as you make the distances smaller. So at atomic scales, it's 1 over 137. But uh, at one hundredth of the proton, which is the smallest we've measured it at, it's 1 over 128. So this is called the running coupling. And this is, again, something that you can calcula- calculate and verify experimentally that everything works the way quantum mechanics and relativity says it has to work. So that's great. We're psyched. So now we can do the same thing for gravity. Because we have a classical theory of gravity. We know about quantum mechanics. Gravity already has relativity in it. Just put it all together and turn the crank. What happens is that Every new process you look at, practically, has a new type of divergence, sensitivity to short distances. So you need an infinite number of parameters to absorb all that ignorance. The upside is that there's no experiment that's sensitive enough to measure those coefficients because they only matter at uh, length scales of order of the Planck scale which is like uh, 17 orders of magnitude smaller than any experiment can probe. So we can't calculate it, and we can't measure it. So one attitude is, we don't care, because if you can't calculate it and you can't measure it, it's sort of metaphysics, not physics. But people who care worry about these things, and that's why they work on things like string theory, where you postulate that... Electrons are not point particles. They're made out of little pieces of string. Don't say what the string is made out of. It's just string. Um, and then if you do that, then you can get solve all this problem with all the infinite number of parameters. You only have a finite number of parameters. You can calculate things, but you still can't measure anything to test the theory. So have you accomplished anything? Some people got tenure, so something was (laughs) accomplished. But, uh, so no one knows. Since we can't measure these things, there's no experiment sensitive to measure quantum gravity. We don't know if string theory is the right answer. It's a potential answer. Maybe there are other potential answers. But until experimentalists can test these things, I don't think we'll know one way or the other. And that's your quantum question for today. Okay, back to work. Uh, so, given this, we can simply write down a new perturbation error Hamiltonian. If we read our book on relativity, it tells us about the Thomas precession, which means that the g, which is about 2, gets 1 subtracted from it. So where do all these factors come from? So this, this E is coming from the E in the electric field. This L is coming from the R cross P in the magnetic field from the Lorentz force. This E is coming from the E in the uh, dipole moment of the electron. So we have two powers of E. That means we can write it in terms of alpha, get rid of the epsilon knots. So we have, as you guys remember what alpha was, e squared over 4 pi epsilon naught h bar c. So we have one power of alpha, and we have l dot s. The s is from the dipole moment. The l is from the effective magnetic field that we see from orbiting the proton. So, does uh, our new perturbation commute with angular momentum? No, because angular momentum doesn't even commute with angular momentum and we have L dot S. So if you work out the commutators, there will be com- LX, LY, LZ in that expression. LX doesn't commute with LY or LZ. So these guys won't be zero. What about with spin? Nope. Because spin has the same commutators with itself as angular momentum, because it is an angular momentum. It's intrinsic angular momentum. Commutators are exactly the same, so it fails to commute for exactly the same reason. However, L squared commutes with components of L. And for the same reason, S squared commutes with the components of s and with l. And if we form the total angular momentum, that thing commutes, which is not so obvious, but there's cancellations between these two guys. The reason, the subtle reason why it's obvious is that the is that this Hamiltonian is rotationally invariant. And if you think of uh, angular momentum as the generator of rotations, you guys had that in a course sometime? No? Bummer. Um, Well, you just have to grind it out then until you take your uh, group theory course and learn that angular momentum is the generator of rotation. So if the Hamiltonian is rotationally invariant, it will commute with the total angular momentum. It sort of makes sense, right? Yeah. If you have a rotational, rotationally invariant Hamiltonian, then it shouldn't be messing up angular momentum. But if the Hamiltonian depended on some particular direction, like, well, anyway, never mind just calculate the commutator at zero. So that means we can choose some simultaneous quantum numbers. We can choose the energy, L squared, S squared, J squared, and Jz. All those guys commute, so we can put, we can find states that are simultaneously eigenstates of every one of those operators. And how does that help us? So what we wanted to know was what L dot S is. And L dot S does not appear on this list exactly. But J squared does. J squared is L plus S squared, which is L squared plus S squared plus 2 L dot S. So L dot S just rearrange this. It's one half J squared minus L squared minus S squared. So if we have an eigenstate of J squared, L squared, and S squared then we know what L dot S is. It's also an eigenstate of L dot S. So the eigenvalues be H bar squared over 2. Eigenvalues of J squared have j times j plus 1, then minus l times l plus 1, minus s times s plus 1. And now we need 1 over r cubed expectation value. That's problem 6.35c. You need to take the expectation value in a state that's an eigenstate of j and jm, and l and you get some funny factors. 1 over l times l plus a half times l plus 1 and a good old a cubed so that it has the right dimensions. So, back to perturbation theory. We figured out what the perturbation Hamiltonian is. Now the first order energy correction is the expectation value of the Hamiltonian in the unperturbed states. So we have our spin spin orbit Hamiltonian. Take its expectation value, and we know that L dot S is an eigen- we know the eigenvalues for that, they're in the numerator and we know the one over r cubed expectation value. So we just have to put it all together. So there's the l dot s, and the one over r cubed And there was 1 over a cubed, so that's h-bar over alpha mc cubed. And uh, so we'll get alpha to the fourth. And we have a 1 over n cubed. So we can write that as, in terms of the lowest order energy squared. that would have a 1 over n to the 4th, so we need to multiply by a factor of n. That would also have... uh, Here we have m cubed over m squared, so we need an overall m. This has m squared, so we need to divide by an m. put together all our order alpha to the fourth corrections. So those are called the fine structure corrections. We had a relativistic correction and a spin orbit correction. And a bit of tedious algebra shows that this complicated mess all goes away. get something that's actually quite simple and it only depends on J. So if we combine that with the lowest order expression we have energy levels are now depend on N, the principal quantum member, and J from the fine structure correction. get our lowest order answer plus our first order fine structure answer so the lowest order answer was minus alpha squared MC squared over 2N squared so we can factor that out and then write the correction down by another alpha squared Really know the spectrum of hydrogen. Almost. <laughs> Except for the next correction. But I promised to do a famous bit your favorite filter Overwhel- problem. Overwhelming majority wanted to see problem number five. problem number 5, we had L equals 3, and spin half. And we're supposed to make eigenstates of total J and find J equals 5 halves, JZ equals H bar 3 halves. So this is 6 halves plus 1 half is 7 halves. So the highest state is J equals 7 halves, JN equals 7 halves. For three three plus state, and uh, now we just act with lowering operators. So lowering this guy, we we'll get j times j plus one minus j z times j z minus one. That lowers us to the five half state. Here we lower this guy, we'll get l times l plus one minus Times and minus one, and also lower the spin. Uh, so out because I <coughs> divide through by root seven. You get a properly normalized state. Six plus one is seven. Yeah. So why don't you do anything with the uh, S plans? I did. I lowered the plus to minus. You don't have to worry about any coefficient? Well, the coefficient, coefficient is one. If you oh. I did that several times so I've, I've memorized it um, yeah. but you can use the same formula, S times S plus 1 minus SM, SM minus 1. We'll find the square root of that is 1. So now we just need to find, oh, we have to go all the way to 3 halves, so now we find the orthogonal state. Just one state that's orthogonal to this guy it must have J equals 5 halves. The minus sign here and the root 6 here. Now we have to lower this guy. So we'll get 5 halves times 7 halves minus 5 halves. Here, get 3 times 4, L times L plus 1 minus 2 times 1. More than 3 1 state. I can also lower this guy. And I can lower this guy. Uh, but I know I just lowered him up here. So we don't have to do this calculation again. We'll get another root 6, so we'll get 6, 3, 2, minus. I can't lower that guy anymore because he's already at the lowest state. So if I take out a uh, five, 5 over 4, we'll get root 5 over 2. 7 minus 3 is 4 again. So this is uh, 12 minus 2, sounds like 10. So that would be root 2 root 5, the minus sign. Here's 6 minus 1, that sounds like 5. I see lots of 5s, so I'm getting an optimistic feeling. So when I divide by this is root 5, get rid of that, Make this is square root. And my state's normalized again because 2 plus 5 is 7. I think I'm done. Oh, no, I've got a simpler answer than I didn't simplify it in my solution. Minus root 10 over root 35 plus 5 over root 35 thing. Yeah? I'm sorry. What, what happened when you went from 7 to 5 like um, What happened on the right side? I'm that. taking the re- state that's orthogonal. So this is the orthogonal state to them. Because mm-hmm. they're eigenstates with different quantum numbers, they must be orthogonal. They have the same JZ, so they must be made out of the same guys over here. Because the LZ and SC just add up. So these are the only states that have add up to jz equals 5 halves. So if there's another state that has jz equals 5 halves, it must be made out of these same things, and it must be orthogonal. So that's the unique state. Yep. How can we so you go from 5 halves to 5 halves to 3 halves? What happens on the right side? The right-hand side? I'm just using the lowering <coughs> operator on both sides. So so I lowered this guy to 3, 1, and I lowered the spin to minus. Okay, but this is L times L plus 1 minus M times M minus 1. Okay. That's true. Okay. We're over time, so that's